Welcome to our podcast, Murder, Mystery, and Mayhem, Laced with Morality, where all authors and experts are invited to share, learn, and together make this a better world where light pierces through the world and with the spoken and written word. I'm really excited about our guest today. I had the honor of meeting him at Killer Nashville's Writers Conference. And let me tell you, he won big. He was a Claymore finalist and winner of the overall and coveted Claymore for his unpublished novel, The Shaking. Jeffrey James Higgins is a former reporter and retired supervisory special agent who writes thriller novels, short stories, creative nonfiction, and essays. He has wrestled the suicide bomber, fought the Taliban in combat, and chased terrorists across five continents. He received both the Attorney General's Award for Exceptional Heroism and the DEA Award of Valor. He has been interviewed by CNN, New York Times, Fox News, Investigation Discovery, Declassified, and USA Today. He has won numerous literary awards, including the Pencraft Book Awards, Fiction Book of the Year, and a Reader's Favorite Gold Medal. Jeffrey is a number one Amazon bestselling author and, of course, a Claymore winner. Jeffrey, welcome. So happy. Thank to you have so today. much. <laughs> what a wonderful introduction. I really appreciate it. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Yeah, and it's all true. <laughs> yeah, that helps, right? If I was going to make something up, I probably would have thrown a Pulitzer in there. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. So, my first question is is about your genre, and I mean, we we know you you write in the thriller genre. We've talked, we've already introduced you as such, but what exactly led you to write in this particular genre? Oh, it's what I enjoy reading. You know, I mean, from the time I was a little kid, I think action and adventure and, you know, being able to explore without the threat of actual death, you know, as a child was appealed to me. So, you know, I mean, I remember when the Tom Clancy books were coming out, you know, and waiting each year for the new one to come out so I could get to the bookstore and pick it up, you know. So it's, it's, you know, writing what you love to read is probably a smart plan. You know, so I'm, the problem is I'm all over. I'm in thriller genre, but I've I've been all over the subgenres. You know, so my first book, uh, Furious, which which I'm, I'm I'm proud of. It's out there. It's, one, it's my first traditionally published book. That was a psychological suspense. And then I wrote Unseen, traditionally published after that, which was crime fiction. And since then, I've written a, a traditional mystery, which was the one I won the Claymore for, Shaking. Okay. And, and then I've got a uh, two techno thrillers and another psychological suspense that are projects which I'm um, I'm shopping now. So, you know, I'm just sort of all over the place, but they're they're all wow. thrillers. They're all fast paced. You know, they all they all have that level of excitement, I hope. That's what I'm going for. But, they're, yeah. but, they, but they are definitely different subgenres and they, and they bring different audiences, which I'm able to actually see through like Facebook and I can see who's, who's clicking on my, on my books and they're very different audiences for each book. So tell our audience a little about your subgenres because I know Furious, that's unusual. That's, a, that's on the water. It's, it's about a sailing incident that went really bad. So, right. So, that, yeah, that's a yeah. woman who who's lost her child and she's trying to recover. So her husband takes the two of them alone on, on a 62-foot uh, Oceanus yacht and they sail across the Indian Ocean to get away from everything and try to have a, a try to break. And then, of course, it's a thriller, so a lot of bad things happen, <laughs> you know, but a lot of it really is psychological. Like the whole the, the, the book builds and builds. It's it's you know, so you, so the reader's wondering what is the actual threat here? Because obviously they're out on the ocean. There's a lot of things that can go wrong. And so it builds yeah. and then once you realize what the threat is, it sort of it just really takes off and you know runs downhill to the end. Wow! Oh my goodness! Yeah, that's eclectic. And then you said that. And then my second are... one was un. I'm sorry. No. Yeah. No. I want to hear about unseen. Yeah, that that's a crime thriller, and it's based on an actual real life terrorist conspiracy. So I spent the majority of my career chasing terrorists around the world. So I have a lot of background in this, and my wife is one of the world's experts on the Muslim Brotherhood. So radical Islamic terrorism is something we both know very well. So it's wow. a it's a fictional story, but it's based on a real life thing that's happening. So that that's that's different, but it's crime fiction, you know. But it, and it's crime fiction with terrorism, which is you know another sub sub genre. And that, uh, and so that that brings a different issue. So, like between comparing just those two books, I know from my paid ads that I, that I launched on Facebook, uh, Furious was like eighty something percent female readers, and then Unseen was completely flipped. It was like eighty percent male. 
Wow. Oh my goodness. So the, and then tell us about the story that you won, the unpublished novel that you won the Claymore for. That's shaking. So yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm hoping to find a publisher for it. I, I think it's, it's got some value to it, but it's a, it's a woman who's battling bipolar disorder and she has a chance to fulfill like her life dependent by becoming a reporter for a big Boston daily. And she goes back home and discovers of uh, the body of her babysitter. And so it's, it's, it's her trying to, to cover this story and trying to find her independence, but it's got, it's got some very big twists in it. And I've had a lot of very positive feedback on it. So fingers crossed. Oh my goodness. Okay. All right. So that is exciting. Okay. And it, it has to be amazing. Cause you, yeah, you won, you won. It's actually, so it's a, yeah, it's a murder mystery, right? So that's the actual, you know, all, all of my books have murders and have, have crimes in them, <laughs> but this one is more of a classic, like small town murder mystery. And it takes place okay. in Harvard, Massachusetts, which is where I grew up, which is just outside okay. of Boston. But it's one of these little New England towns with 5,000 residents and just, you know, just, it's just gorgeous little wooded town filled with apple orchards. But it can be either just, you know, physically stunning or it can be really creepy, sort of depending on the circumstances, you know. So I use the setting in that book as another character. And it's um, and it, I, I had a lot of fun playing with people being in the same places, but having a completely different, different atmosphere to, you know, depending on what was happening at the time. Oh, I love that. Wow. It gives, it reminds me of Louise Penny. I don't know if you're familiar with her, but she, sure. she plays a lot on, yeah, on environment and the, the scenic town. Um, okay. So you've been invited to our expert series to discuss your journey as a writer and an industry professional. So in a nutshell, can you describe your journey before and after getting into the publishing industry a little? Well, I'm old, so that could take a lot of time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, I, I, I grew up wanting to be a writer, like like probably most of your listeners. Uh-huh. And, you know, it was something I just I just was, I was always captivated by story. You know, I, I get excited when I open a, a beginning of a book. I get excited going through a library and being surrounded by all these stories. You know, the, the sound yeah. of, a, of like the beginning of a movie, you know, it just gets me excited yeah. to hear the lion roar or whatever. You know, so <laughs> I just I've, I've always just loved stories. It goes back to probably when my parents read me bedtime stories every night. You know, I, this is all their fault. <laughs> but uh, so I, I decided I was going to be a journalist and I, my undergraduate degree was in journalism at BU and I, I was a reporter after and a, a news yeah. editor after college. And then I was between jobs and I had this opportunity to uh, work for a private investigator. So I was like, oh, that sounds kind of cool. You know, won't that be great fodder for books? And that just yeah. exposed me to this whole other kind of adventurous lifestyle and I ended up becoming a, a deputy sheriff down in Florida, in, in Tampa, Florida, Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office. And okay. then I became, then I joined DEA and became a federal agent. And then spent after, I was one of the first people to arrive at the North Tower after it collapsed on 9-11. And that wow. really changed the trajectory of my career. And I, wow. I wanted to do nothing but terrorism, you know, counterterrorism after that. So I, mm-hmm. I ended up um, going, you know, working for uh, the Joint Terrorism Task Force. I, I went down as a liaison to the Department of Homeland Security um, in the wake of 9-11. Then I, I opened the DEA office. So I, was a, I was one of the two first uh, permanent agents assigned to that office. And I spent, you know, 15 months in Afghanistan and we're working with the, the, the local police and, and training and trying to get units together. And then I transferred to our uh, new uh, FAST teams, which were our foreign deployed like advisory team. So it was basically a foreign tactical team. And we went after high value targets. And I did that for five years. And I, then I went to DEA as part of the special, they have a special operations division, which is a fusion center for all federal law enforcement and intelligence agencies. And I, I worked there in one of their two proactive groups and they have like a bilateral investigations unit. And I worked in a narco-terrorism group. So our, for five, another five years, I, I ran around the world chasing these high value targets, trying to get them arrested, you know, working with foreign intelligence, foreign militaries and foreign law enforcement, and then bringing them back to the United States for prosecution. So I did some really interesting cases from, you know, a, a guy working with Iranian intelligence to buy surface to air missiles to the world's biggest heroin trafficker who's a narco terrorist to the, I actually did the first narco terrorism case after the law was passed in the wake of 9-11. So I had a really interesting career. I was, I was very fortunate to be able to do the things I wanted to do and try to protect our country in a way I, I just like psychologically needed to do after 9-11. I, I'm like drooling on myself because 
you said so many exciting things. Well, first of all, like I wasn't born in New York, but I, I grew up there and I went to see the towers when it was still smoking. And um, that dredged up a lot of emotions, even when I'm talking about it. I think anybody who's a New Yorker, when you see the, or just has an attachment to New York and you see how important those buildings were, the historic, and then to see them crumbled like that. And I saw when they were working on it, like I said, we had to wrap our faces because it was it was still smoldering. Um, tell me, can you just tell me a little bit about what you what what went through your mind when you first went to Ground Zero? Yeah, I remember seeing it on TV like a lot of people at the gym and I jumped in my car and raced down there because that's what law enforcement does, right? We race into the into the face of danger as opposed uh, to fleeing from it. it. I remember I seeing it. people yeah. running up the West Side Highway. It was like it was like a horror movie, you know, yeah. tens of thousands of people just streaming up this uh, trying to get away from the, the the cloud. And when as I was coming down the, the West Side Highway, the first tower collapsed. I went into my office. I mean, just, you know, seeing, seeing that one tower standing there smoking. And I went into my office and there was, you know, everything was kind of chaos and people didn't know what was happening. And so a few of us agents got together. We left our names and, and pager numbers. That's how old this was, right? <laughs> Jumped in cars and we and we went down. And as we were leaving the office, the second tower came down. So literally I went down there with a group of people and, you know, we were talking to firefighters and police and everyone just didn't know what had happened. I mean, the, the loss of life obviously was so enormous, but yeah. the loss of life of the first responders was, was just devastating. So yeah. there was complete chaos. So I ended up walking down and ended up by myself walking down to this tower. And I was like a block away. I remember walking through the smoke. I mean, you couldn't breathe. You couldn't see anything. And this guy walks out of the smoke and he was a Suffolk County detective that I'd worked with on a racketeering case years before. And the two of us were joined by this female NYPD uh, uh, patrol officer. And we went, we were the first people to get to that tower after it came down. So I mean, it was just, just horrific. You know, we were, we were giving aid to people. We were pulling bodies yeah. out of the rubble. It was, yeah. you know, it's it, it was it was just just a, you know the that the enormous amount loss of life there obviously mm-hmm. is, is important. But then, like you say, these iconic towers and you know looking at these these two systems colliding, you know, and one mm-hmm. trying to destroy and the other, you know, to create to create these towers and the in the in the in the wealth and the productivity of New York City, you know, it was really mm-hmm. striking. But it changed after that. Like a lot of people, it just I just that's all I wanted to do is fight uh, terrorism after that yeah wow oh my gosh it's so powerful yeah you and i both we had people that we knew there i was um just the stories they're endless in, in terms of what really went on and the horrific nature i just i just don't want our country to ever forget how how horrific that really was i think a lot of the fine details are glossed over and i wouldn't mind seeing some more things to really talk about the enormity of of what took place there so thank you for your service thank you for being a a first responder and putting yourself in harm's way for our safety i i appreciate that Um, well thank you i've I've written a book called blood and powder it's a manuscript right now and i'm looking for a publisher for it it's a, a, lot, a lot of the a lot of the 911 type books you know i think saturated the market for a period after 911 but yeah. my book covers the my journey from there to the to going you know to afghanistan and actually making the first narco terrorism case which is you know exposing and proving the link between narcotics uh, you know illicit narcotic sales and terrorism which yes. now seems like a no brainer but at the time even the intelligence agencies were claiming there was no link. Like it was, you know, the military didn't want to get involved because of they were afraid of a slippery slope if they got more into the narcotic side of things. But there too are, you know, in, in strict, in strictly linked. And Southwest Asia has the highest concentration of terror groups in the world, and they mm-hmm. supply ninety percent of the world's heroin. You know, so it's obviously you can't ignore the, the the biggest income stream when you're when you're dealing with terrorist groups and unfortunately we're back in that situation now after our disastrous withdrawal from afghanistan yeah so so yeah i, yeah, I um oh my goodness so can you just touch on that a little bit more about the link between drugs and terrorism because i i do a I have a lot of that in, in my research and my books as well, but it's so fun to hear this from an actual expert. 
Yeah, I mean, there's several types of, of like narco-terrorism is a term people use now, but there's actually a U.S. law now, 21960A, which is the, the known as the narco-terrorism law. But there's, there's like classical narco-terrorism where you think of like, you know, Pablo Escobar or these drug groups that yeah. would, you know, target judges and prosecutors and they, were, they would commit acts of terror as a way right. to further their, their ability to make money on drug sales. Then you have ideologically driven groups like the Taliban or ISIS that are driven for ideology or, you know, theology, but they actually need to fund what they're doing. So they, they look to these different illicit revenue streams because, you know, they, they can't, they can't do things legally where, where their money will be seized in the money market. So they have to work outside, outside in shadow economies. And then you have, you have the rare instances, like the first narco-terrorism case I did, where you had a, a guy, Khan Mohammed, who was actually a terrorist, ideologically driven, but he was also a drug trafficker and did and had, kind of had a foot equally in both camps. Mm-hmm. But the most the most common type of narco-terrorism that you see is this this uh, collaboration between traffickers and, and uh, terrorists, where like in Afghanistan, you had uh, traffickers protecting the labs, you know, uh, going after government informants, basically working hand in glove with the, the traffickers, but each kind of stayed in their own lane. And the traffickers right. in return would give a portion of the proceeds. I mean, the UN estimates, and this is a very low estimate, but for years they've been saying somewhere between two and $400 million a year goes from the heroin trade directly into these terror, into the Taliban, specifically into their pockets. But it's, you know, I think the number is probably much, much bigger than that. And it'll certainly be bigger than that now. So, you know, like if if you're even like if you're a a gang in in L.A. or a gang in New York, you know, you can't open up a bed and breakfast to fund your activities. Drugs are are, are a very uh, productive way for them to to uh, make some quick cash. You know, the, right. um, a kilo of heroin in Afghanistan was going for like between thirty-five hundred and five thousand dollars. By the time yeah. it, it's 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 cut and distributed on the street, it'll bring in like a million or a million and a half. So wow. the the profit margins are just staggering. So obviously, terror groups use this. They also do weapons trafficking and human trafficking and other things, but nothing brings in the money like drugs. I was going to mention. I, I, I'm glad you mentioned human trafficking because before the U.S. thought that was something they wouldn't have to grapple with. But now it's it's here in our country. Do, do you do you see those? Do you see us doing more about going after human trafficking? Yeah, I mean, there, it, the federal government and a lot of different agencies have been have been making huge strides in, in countering human trafficking. It's tough when you don't have a secure border. You know, I mean, yeah. that that that's a really big issue with with human trafficking, and it's. But it's something that you know law enforcement certainly takes very seriously. I think when when you live in a country like ours, you know, and when, when it's so affluent, and some of this stuff feels like fiction, you know, and it, it feels it feels like like people are. I mean, it's you walk around most neighborhoods in in the United States, and they're safe, and people yeah. have a level of civility to each other, and you know, you you can pick up the phone and dial you know three numbers, and a police car will be there in minutes. You know, right. like. People get used to that, but that's not the human experience throughout all of human history. And when right. when you live and when you're so coddled like we are, right? Which is good. Yeah. We should be. I wish everybody was like this. But when you yeah. when you live like this, you forget about the evil in the world, and you forget that there's there's countries and and, and people who who want to destroy you. And that is the right. way of humanity, right? For for yeah. every culture and every ethnicity and every everyone, people want to control each other, and that that's right. been the way of the world. And we're just we're living in this really protected time that's never existed before. Yeah, that's really good. Wow. So when things happen, sometimes we're shocked. And now with the now with the speed of, of internet technology and the ways that we can how fast we can get information, I think people are just more and more aware about the things that are happening in the rest of the world. You know how it impacts yeah that, that's yeah. true like the, the information's there if people want it but i still feel like when people hear about this stuff they don't think it applies to them like you, mm-hmm. you see you see it a lot but there is great <laughs> evil around the world and you'd be surprised i actually wrote a book a couple of years ago i started i wrote about fifty thousand words this was a year before the pandemic and because i was wondering what would happen if like our supply chain collapsed you know mm-hmm. and because they say they say you're like 10 days out right from from yeah. just total chaos and all people are capable of great good and great evil like we are right there's that's why we have these moral structures and things as as a way to choose our paths right Right. and as a way to try try to guide behavior 
But what happens like when you're starving to death? You know, what happens yeah. when your children are starving to death? What are you capable yeah. of? So I started writing a book about that, but unfortunately I, I said, how would that happen? Oh, probably a pandemic. And then of course, like like nine months later, the pandemic hit. So I just I just showed that because yeah, because I don't I don't want to read about it and I don't think anyone yeah. else does either. <laughs> oh, well, I don't know. You should maybe look at that again. That's I'm telling you, we we live here in Florida and we've seen some frightening things when we've had the threat of hurricanes or actual hurricanes come where people become very primal very quickly it's shocking and i i mean these are nice neighborhoods but i'm telling you you just you get nervous you go when you go into the supermarket and all the uh all the shelves are empty and people fighting over water <laughs> Yeah, I remember in New Orleans, I remember a, a case where a, a brother and sister, one of them murdered the other over water, you know, and it, and it's, it sounds like, well, maybe that's insane, right? But when people are put, when people have like a, a, a kind of a, a simple, a cushy protected life, and then they get thrown into a life and death situation, they're not used to it and they don't, they don't know how they're going to react. And right. people, and people are capable of bad things, as we know, that's why we're oh, constantly dealing with it, right? Things like human trafficking. Yeah. Wow. So good. Well, just shifting gears a little bit. Um, what advice can you share with our author community regarding marketing and platform building? Yeah, the thing that nobody wants to have to deal with, right? You know, I, I tell you, to, to make it to make it more fun and interesting. I mean, I look at it like as a way to connect to readers. You know, so we all write because we want people to read their, our stories, right? So yeah. you know, I, instead of looking at it as a chore, I look at it as every time I get another reader, it's exciting for me. You know, and yeah. so you know, there's there's a lot of ways to do it. Obviously, you know, I mean, podcasts like this are a good way to connect with people. You know, the, mm -hmm. it's just a slow build. Like unless you're unless you're that one tenth of one percent that can publish yeah. something and the book explodes and has a big breakout but that's so rare right even if you're with yeah. uh, some of the the biggest big five uh, imprints it's still very rare that's so the way though the, the old-fashioned way to do it is you build your readership and mine just mine just grows and grows and grows you know and, mm -hmm. and that's that that's i think the way to do it and then when you have a breakout you'll have all these books that you've already written that can then also break out you know it's, it's very common for best-selling authors to have that breakout on like their sixth book or their eighth book, right? Or their 10th book. Like you see that all the time. And yeah. then everything else they've written becomes a bestseller too, right? Because yeah. you find a new author that you didn't know about. And then you, I, I do this. Then I, I read everything they've written. So I'm like, oh, I, yeah. like Tess Gerritsen. I'd never read a Tess Gerritsen thriller. She does like medical thrillers and crime thrillers. And I yeah. read one about a year ago and I'm like, oh my God, she's fantastic, right? So wow. I went back and I read, I've read almost everything she's written at this point just because, you know, I, why not? Why wouldn't I? She's wonderful. Oh my goodness! You're so right. That does happen. And in fact, in interviewing, in interviewing um, so many different authors, I've been like, "What? You know, what, you know congrats on your de debut novel." They're like, "This is like my novel. Nobody knew about me before." <laughs> Right, right, right. The the overnight instant success, right? That's that that took ten years in the making. It's and so so one of the one of the, the authors who was so generous with his time was uh, for me was Steve Barry. He was one of the founders of International Thriller Writers, and I think he was on his sixth or seventh or eighth book. I don't know. He had, he had like seven books in a drawer. And he finally got an agent and finally sold a book and it blew up. Then he went back and all the all the rest of them became bestsellers too. And he's, he's got over 25 million books in print now. But here was a guy who couldn't get that first book published and took him, you know. So I mean, you see that and you that's actually more normal than the opposite, right? The, yeah. Like I, I always tell myself that the only way to fail is to stop. <laughs> you know, so and as long as long as you can see some forward momentum where you're getting more readers, you're selling more books, you know, just keep writing because I'm a firm believer in that Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hour rule, you know, to become an expert, you need 10,000 10, hours in any discipline. And for writers, I think that translates into like a million words, you know, so I know when I go back and read something that I wrote like two years ago, I'm like, oh no, like I, I do so many yeah. things differently, you know, and I'd fix yeah. it. Hey, I do that now with every time, every time I do an editing iteration of a current draft. You know, right. I go back to the I beginning know. and I fix, right? So, it's you know, true. if you just stick with it, I think, you know, I think, I think you'll, you'll keep, that's the only pathway to success. You know, yeah. if you quit, it's over. But yeah. just that's, to that's answer your question about the marketing, I've, there's a lot of different things to do. You know, I found that I've tried, you know, I've done tons of stuff that didn't work, like, you know, print magazines and getting into magazines that were about the same subject matter. And what I found was, if it's online and someone can see your book or see the title and click on it and get right to like an Amazon page or right to your publisher's page, 
that turns into sales. But if okay. there's even one step in between that where they have to remember it or make a note, it, it doesn't happen. So uh, Facebook ads are very effective. Amazon ads are effective. I've, I haven't had great luck with BookBub, but I've, I've tried and I've, I've, I've had sales through them. Uh, Goodreads yeah. deals have turned into sales. But out of all of that, Facebook paid Facebook ads are my favorite because you can okay. craft your audience, you can see the demographics, you know the age, you know the gender, you can you can do A/B testing, you know where you where you have two ads that are the same, and essentially you're looking yeah. at like a headline, uh, uh, an image, the in the brief description, right? And so okay. you look at and, and then the, and then the crafted audience, which the no one can see but you, but you know your audience. You do two of those ads. You change one of those pieces in each ad and see whichever one works better. Then you dump the first one and keep the one that's working better. And then you do a second ad and you change another thing and see if that works. And and you can very quickly, you know, at like five dollars a day over a, over like a week, you can figure out what's your most effective ad. And then like I think they say over three percent in advertising is is a good click rate. And okay. I most of my ads usually get five or seven percent, which is pretty wow. good. And then you know you, it's harder to determine the the sell through rate, but you can. Like when you're traditionally published, you don't see all that data, but there's there's yeah. some workarounds. But I found those to be highly effective. Wow. Okay. So Facebook ads work best for you. You have Amazon ads, Goodreads, and BookBub. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and then and then festivals and conferences, you know, the, mm -hmm. that that's a that's a great way to develop readers because people can like we met right in person. And right. It's a great yeah. it's a great way to take a look at someone's writing and 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 that you know that might be slow. Maybe you only sell twenty books or something at a conference, but that's twenty readers and they are they're all probably new readers, you know. And and yeah. then you just and, and you do you do a few of those a year. You, I, I go to like library fairs and festivals and you know things like that, and I'll, I'll have a table set up and I'll sell books and I'll meet readers. And you, you get to talk to people, and and that's to me that's so much fun. It's fun to talk yeah. about writing and talk about stories and listen to what their favorite stuff is. And I you know people email you, and it's just it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Festivals, writer conferences, they're, they're tons of fun. And the, um, the bookstore that we were at, that was, a, that was a ton of fun. I find that I get into a lot of trouble because I end up buying way more books than I, <laughs> uh, but you do, you get introduced to new friends. Um, there's some books that I cannot put them down since I, I, um, left um, killer Nashville and um, yours is going to be next on my list but I I only have so many hours in the day <laughs> <laughs> sure I, I think I and every member of your audience completely understands that I, you know one of the things I do now is like I, I, I like to read I like paper copies of books but I also always have something on, on Kindle that I'm going through and then when I'm in the car and it's when I'm driving to these things I listen to audiobooks too so you know, I end up reading probably 70 books a year, but yeah. even with that, I always have a hundred books on my to be read list. You know, I just have stacks of books around the house that I haven't gotten to yet. Yeah. It's, it's a good place yeah. to be. <laughs> it, yeah, it is. Yeah. I hide a lot of my books on my Kindle. So my husband doesn't know how, I mean, it's bad. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. It's pretty bad in this house, but Kindle is a great place to store your, your stuff. But are there any words of encouragement you can offer to those struggling with um, everyday author challenges like rejection, isolation, and marketing? Well, yeah, we all <laughs> we're all suffering through all of those, right? Like, I mean, you know, the best-selling authors still deal with rejection. You hear this yeah. all the time. Someone who's had yeah. ten bestsellers and then gets their yeah. next book rejected. The markets change. Publishers have different fads they go through. Like, yeah. listen, rejection is part of it. You know, they say you have a tough skin. When it first happens, it is harder, right? You do take it more personally, but the more it happens, it really bounces off. And I would say this, there's a, there's a cool book. I wish I could remember the title, something like Rotten Rejections and Dirty Reviews or Rotten Rejections and Reviews, something like that. Yeah. It's on Amazon, okay. but it's, it's a compilation of half of it's like reviews and half of, and half of it's rejections. And it's the greatest books of all time <laughs> and how like, how like <laughs> critics had panned them, you know? You know that, that that's a great, it's an interesting story, Mr. Melville. But does it have to be a whale? You know that kind of stuff. And 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 but you read about it and you see like so many. I mean, Harry Potter, right? When what did yeah. she go through? Like thirty rejections from publishers or something? You know. But wow. you see it. It's it's the norm. It's not it's yeah. not the exception. And so, in listen, agents have a tough job because you know how yeah. how do they know what a publisher is going to want? They're one step removed, right? Since since mm -hmm. acquiring editors basically outsource that job to agents. 
they're it's it's a whole other level away from the reader, you know. So they have to figure out what a publisher wants. The publisher has to figure out what their bookstores are going to buy, and the bookstores have to figure out what the public wants, you know. So right. you're so far away. They they honestly they don't they're just guessing. Like they yeah. know good writing, they know good craft, they they know trends. They they you know some of them are brilliant people, but it's a very hard job. So if it they is. reject you, it doesn't mean that they're right. No. <laughs> you know? No. And 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 as evidence, I give you. All the writers who ever lived, you know, who had amazing <laughs> books that become runaway bestsellers that were rejected, and it's it's yeah. more than it really is the norm. So I'd yeah. say, don't worry about the rejection. You know, make yourself part of the community, right? Like go, to, like yeah. have a critique group, have beta readers, go to conferences. I'm I'm a really big fan of uh, Sisters in Crime. I'm a part of the Chessy mm -hmm. chapter. And I'm also part of the New England chapter. Uh, international thriller writers that that do, do they do Thriller Fest every year. They are the most okay. supportive group of people. Killer Nashville wow. that where we just met, right? What a great yeah. conference it is, where people so can get together and talk about the business and talk about the craft. So become part of that community and and be giving, right? So. You know, when 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 other you get to know other authors, you can get to know them on Twitter or Facebook. You can get to know them in person, and then you, over the years you develop these relationships. And when they have stuff, you know, support them and read their stuff and leave reviews. And it, I promise you, they'll come back to you. You know, so right. just and remember yeah. the last thing. So <laughs> last, just the last thing. Keep keep, no, keep understand that you're you're storytellers, right? That that's what all all authors are storytellers. And enjoy that, right? Like writing yeah. stuff can be difficult. But remember, you're writing a story. This is what you want to do. If you don't, want, if you really hate it, do something else. You know, like <laughs> life's too short. Do something else. But if you're a storyteller and you have to tell stories, like most of us do, then just be so excited that you're able to to share stories. I mean, it's amazing when you think about it, right? Like we don't yeah. even know how your how our subconscious is working and creating these things. You know, you wake up with an idea, you're in the shower, and something comes mm -hmm. to you. Like your conscious and subconscious work together, and they pull these stories out of the universe. And, and if yeah. you don't do it, that story will never be never be told by anyone, mm -hmm. right? So it's 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 an amazing, just beautiful gift that that people have, and they're, that they're able to be part of this process. And so yeah. enjoy telling the story, enjoy writing it. And then when people read it, enjoy that, right? I mean, it's yeah. it's so cool when people write to you about how much they loved your books, and I mean, it's so much fun. And if mm -hmm. you're not there yet, right? Because this, this is a hard business. I was, you know, I started as a writer, as a journalist, and but then I spent 25 years in law enforcement, where I was, you know, writing 30 pages a day, but it it wasn't fiction. You know, it was it was, it was intelligence reports were not fiction. Um, <laughs> And so, so when I started writing full time in 2017, I was like, okay, yay! I'm a writer. I have to do this. I always thought of myself as one, but then I had to learn the craft, right? Because right. it, it is different. So I've read, I've probably read 70 books on craft. You know, I, I listen wow. to podcasts. I, I, I go to conferences. I take courses. You know, I, I have, I have critique partners. Like mm -hmm. you just have to learn it, and you just get better and better and better. Mm -hmm. And people like former former law enforcement officers will send me stuff all the time on LinkedIn. Hey, would you mind looking at? And I always tell them like, send me a couple of pages or send me five pages. Like I, you know, I don't have time to read everything, but yeah. you can see like all the rookie mistakes, right? And and I know yeah. they're mistakes because I made all of them. <laughs> I made yeah. every single one of them, right? Yeah. And so you can, you, you just you know learn the craft, and then and, and just and you'll just you, you, every time you write something, even if it doesn't get published, you're you're better than when you started, you know, that when you started that work, and you'll be yeah. better with the next one. So just keep just keep writing. That's that's my word of encouragement. That is so good. Oh my gosh, so rich. Wow, I feel like I'm. I feel like I'm at a writers' conference, learning from you. This is this is amazing. <laughs> so what's what's better you... than talking about writing? Oh my gosh, I know. When I come back from these writers' conferences, my my family's so happy because I'm full. You know, I, I'm not. I'm not begging them to read something. Or um, I think we kind of grow out of that, though. When you try to make your friends and family. Like your beta readers or your your tribe, <laughs> they're really not your tribe. We need to get that into our heads. They love us. They support us. They'll feed us. They'll love us. They'll let us cry on their shoulders when we get rejection. But they're not really our, the most part. We have to find, like you said, those critique groups, those outside beta readers, those organizations, and and conferences. Yeah, and I'll, I'll add to that, that. Like, like I write all my work for my wife, right? Like, and when I'm writing, I'm, I'm picturing, oh, will, will she like this? Would that scare her? Like, you know, I write everything for her. But, but you know, and I'll, and I'll let my parents read things, and I'll let you know friends. But you're right. You need you need beta readers. Like, I have a mixture of of authors 
and uh, people who just read in that genre. And you, yeah. they, you, ha- you, you, you have to have beta readers who understand the tropes and understand reader expectations and know right. what you're doing. Because if it'll it'll kill you. If, if you get a beta reader who doesn't read, like frequently read your genre, they're right. gonna give you advice that doesn't work. It just doesn't exactly. work. They don't understand what you're doing. You know, If you're writing yeah. like a military thriller and you have all this technical stuff in there and people are like, oh my God, the technical stuff. But that's what military thriller readers want, right? Like it's yeah. a different thing. It's right. different than if you're writing a psychological suspense. And so, and then the same thing with your critique group, like get definitely get a critique group, but get people who have accomplished something. Hopefully you're, hopefully you're the least experienced person in your critique group. <laughs> you know, you want people who are super successful and yeah. know what they're talking about and understand the craft, but understand the craft in your genre. Yeah. That, that's so critical. That's a good, that's a good word. Because if you are the best writer in your critique group, it's maybe time to seek out something a little different. You want to get sharpened every time you submit something, you know. Well, yeah, I agree. You, but I also yeah. I also believe in up and down, helping up and down, right? So yeah. if you are the best person, you can still help those people. Like I help people yeah. who aren't as far along in the journey as I am, just so that they don't make the same mistakes I made, you know. I yeah. try to, I try to help as much as I can and then I try to learn from the people who are in front of me. You know, yeah. so as long as we're all help, we're all in the same boat and there's you can't write too many books, you know, like I I want everyone to write a great book because I want to read it. Yeah, paying it forward and paying it backward. I, I taught a class in mentoring um, to a writer's in a writer's conference not too long ago. And that was one of the things I, I talked about the importance of of mentoring, you know, for where you are, because there's always someone who's struggling, who's who's not as far along as you and then to be mentored. And so just, it, I'm so glad you touched on that to make sure that you pay it forward and backward. You ne- never feel like you've yeah. arrived and you can't mentor other people and help. And, and there is karma to it, right? Like just, just yeah. helping out. If you can help someone else out, it's just the right thing to do. And let's mm-hmm. face it, when we're all as authors, you know, it is a world of rejection. It is a world yeah. of criticism, right? It is like, so if we can help each other, if we can't help each other, who's going to help us, right? Like, <laughs> we, we, re- we really are part of a community and we need to help each other. And honestly, like I was a tutor in college and teaching a subject that I was actively taking actually helped me learn it. You know, yeah. so when you're if you're helping someone who's not as far along as you and you're telling them things, it just reinforces it in your own mind. So it it, 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 there is something that helps you as well. Yes. Yeah. I, I that's why I love editing, because every time I edit someone's work, I feel like I become a better writer. So it's, and you do. So true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I see myself. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I overuse that word, too. I'm kind of so can you share your method to keep focused and organized as you manage your various writing projects? Yeah, so I'm, I'm a little anal, you know, a little OCD. So I'm, I'm, okay. I'm like hyper organized in my life. One, one of the, okay. some of the tools, like I have a space, like I can write anywhere, right? So like, you know, it's, it's I used to be a distance runner and it, to get high mileage up, you just have to get in whatever you can when you can, you know, so okay. you have to be very disciplined. So you can do things like there's there's neuroscience behind this, right? There, like there's behavioral behavioral science that shows if you make things easier, it takes less willpower to do them. So okay. like when I used to run, I'd have my sneakers laid out at the edge of the bed. So I'd roll out of bed in the morning, just get right into my stuff and go. I didn't have to think mm-hmm. about it. Right. Yeah. So like when you're writing, same thing, like have have hours like that you can set aside have things turned off on your computer other than your writing, you know, get into that focus. I, I used to meditate a lot. So I'm, I'm able to like focus very much into what I'm doing. And the, the minute you lose yourself into something, you, you get that flow and your productivity rate just spikes. And if even if you get one, you know, you get a notification on your, your computer, or if you get a phone call or whatever, even though if, if it only takes you 30 seconds to look at it, it might take you another five or 10 minutes to get back into that flow state. So when you have time that you're writing, make it writing time. Just literally, even if it's only half an hour, say, this is all I'm doing. It's completely focused on what you're doing. And to do this, you know, like I have a home office, which I use, but I, you know, I write on the road when I'm in the car, I dictate, by the way, here's a huge productivity tip. I use a dragon software, which is from the company's nuance, but they're like the, the original dictation software. And okay. they have an app for my for your iPhone. It's like fifteen bucks a month, I think. And you know, and, it, and so you just open files, you dictate into it. The cursor just sits there blinking, and, and when you start talking, it starts translating or you're transcribing again. And when you're done, you just hit a button like a share button, like you'd share something to Facebook. And I just email it to myself, and I cut and paste it into Scrivener, which is what I use. 
Okay. So that's a really helpful productivity tool. Um, Scrivener, okay. which I just mentioned, that's a great way to organize. Uh, so tell know, our tell our audience about Scrivener because there's, there's always people. I have Scrivener. I'm not going to talk about. I'm not going to talk about. It. I'm going to let you talk about it. Why do you like Scrivener? Well, so first off, it's just it's Word on steroids, right? So it's it's <laughs> it's basically you're writing just like you would in Word, only there's tons of options. And I, if there's a hundred things that Scrivener allows you to do, I probably use 10 of them. Like I don't use much, but what yeah. I use is enough that really helps my writing. So you have a pro, you know, it's, you download the software, you have, you can have it, by the way, you can have it on your phone. You can, you can, you know, if you, if you, if you have like iCloud, you can share it between your devices. So if you're traveling on your laptop or your home or whatever, you can, you know, you have the same document, but it, it, it has a binder on, on the left side and mm -hmm. it has like scene, like boxes, text boxes. And you, have, you, you do a folder for each chapter and you can have multiple scenes, text boxes under each folder. So it's basically an outline. And yeah. there's a different view where you have a corkboard view where it's just like you had like um, uh, post-it notes like up on a, on a giant board, right? And you can yeah. look at it. And so in all this, and it's so much better than just Word because you can, you can just click and drag scenes from one place to another. You can, you yeah. know, you can cut and paste. You can open two different scenes side by side and, and, and compare them and cut and paste. You can, yeah. you, I color code my binder. So like I, like if I'm writing a thriller with multiple POVs, each yeah. POV will be in a different color. So I can just look at it like as a whole and see, oh, I, I went too long without getting back to this POV, you know, and I can fix it. It just, mm -hmm. it, people get intimidated by Scrivener because there's so much to it. And I mean, mm -hmm. really, there's, there's like, there's like a hundred different functions for, you don't need all of them. Just the, yeah. uh, when I, when I share it with friends or whatever, I give them like five things and I'm like, just do this, you know? And, yeah. and so I, I really recommend it for organization is fantastic. Yeah. Um, mm. that's, there's oh, other that's tools. So yeah. Tell us what, what other tools do you use? I use there's a, something called uh, Todoist, T-O-D-O-I-S-T. It's a task list for your phone, okay. and you can you can do um, folders for each project. So you know when you're out and you're doing something and you have an idea, I just click on my list and I, I tag that particular project I'm working on, and I, I write down whatever it is. And whenever I get back to my computer, I can enter it. Oh, um, it's wow. just you know it's just it's just a way it's a it's a really handy online tool and it's on my computer it's on my phone right it's on my laptop it's 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 everywhere so mm -hmm. you're never you're never apart from that so mm -hmm. I, I use those I uh, Scrivener uh, Dragon um, I mean there's there's a lot of a lot of technical things that you can use to organize but I, I'm just a big believer in like writing stuff down oh I tell you I'll tell you the weirdest one. Um, when, when, when you're because our subconscious is if you're in, if you're writing every day, which I recommend, it's yeah. your story stays in your subconscious. So when you're asleep, when you're not thinking about it, your mind's actually actually solving problems, and no it one is. knows how this. Yeah, right. Yes. It's real, but nobody knows how it works. Like we don't, we, we just don't understand it yet. The subconscious is still a huge mystery, right? So right. one of the things, like when I'm in the shower you get that kind of meditative state, right? You're not thinking about it. You're letting your mind just wander go. And then something will pop into your head. This happens yeah. to most people I know. Like it could happen when you're, you know, taking a nap. It could happen when you're like, when you're walking, right? When you, when you, right. when your body's in motion, you actually have more neural connections. It, it's supposed to give you like a 10 point IQ bump when you're walking. So, wow. you know, so that it happens there too. That's actually what got me into the dragon software. But when I'm in the shower, I would have these ideas and I'd be like, oh, and then I have another one and another one. And all of a sudden I'd be thinking of acronyms. Like, how am I going to remember this? So when I get to my computer, I can write it and I'm racing across the you know room trying to. So I got something called Aqua Notes. <laughs> and it's it's a waterproof paper with a pencil and it has these little suction cups and you just stick it on the side of the shower i know this sounds crazy i promise you i'm not a lunatic but oh. it's it, it just allows you in pencil to write down the idea and i can't tell you how many times before this i would have like four or five ideas in the shower i'd get out i get dressed i go to my office and i'd i'd forget three of them it happened all the time. So I'm a big fan of when you have the idea, write it down right then because it, it, it can disappear very quickly. See, this is a game changer. I mean, my family knows me. People, people once they get to know me, they'll see how quirky your, some of the writer habits can be because I have notebooks everywhere. So I have them in the bathroom, beside my bed, <laughs> right. everywhere. Just notebooks. But Aquanotes, oh my gosh, what a game changer. Okay. I hope our audience is getting all of this good stuff. <laughs> it helps. <laughs> <laughs> that is so good. Oh my gosh. I love it. 
Okay. Um, that's that's actually how I trap. You know, my husband gets to bounce things off of him because a lot of times I'm I'll write from a male perspective, and my male characters are done really well. But everything gets vetted by. He's like a guy would never do that. He would never hug you. No, he'd slap you on the shoulder. <laughs> you know, but I'll corner him in the shower. I'm like, so <laughs> I have a big <laughs> And he'll be like, you know, you should, he should I, this should happen that because that's not, that wouldn't, that's not something a guy would, would do. But now with Aquanotes, <laughs> <laughs> we can change all of that. That's too funny. Oh my gosh. Um, you know, I just so, thought of uh, one more, I just, one more thing I do just to keep all this straight is I keep uh, uh, two different folders. One's, a, I, I just title it writer's notebook. And it's when I have those weird thoughts, like, you know, and in, in that, like, you know, a character idea or a setting idea or a little snippet of something or a piece of description or whatever. And then I have another one, which are write, a folder with writing ideas. And I have them for novels and short stories and essays. And, you know, I break them down like that. And so some, sometimes you'll have this great idea, but maybe it's not fully formed. And I'll write it down and then come back to it later. And often I'll merge two or three ideas together. This actually just happened to me yesterday. I was walking and I was like, oh, my God, I just... I had this one idea and I knew it wasn't enough, but this other idea I had would work perfectly with it, you know, and I could put these together and I started getting excited about it. But by, by, if you want to be effective, you got to finish the project you're on before you start something else. You know, a lot of people yeah. follow that shiny, shiny uh, object. Yeah. Um, so what I do is I write them down and then when I'm done with my project and I go back to it, if I look at it and it's still exciting to me, then I'll, I'll, I'll work, I'll dig into it. If not, I go through my list. I mean, I have hundreds of story ideas, you know, and, yeah. and I think I have like 400 story ideas and I'll, and I'll just go through them and see if something catches my eye. I'll be like, oh, all right, I remember that now. And had I not written it down, I'd never remember it. See, that's amazing. Very good. These are very um, great advice. Well, how do you recommend lacing our author platforms with moral messages? Because, you know, the tagline of this podcast is, you know, morality, mm -hmm. right. placing our, our work with morality. Well, I think, I mean, it's a, it's a double-edged sword, right? Like you have to be mm -hmm. careful. Nobody wants to be preached to and no. nobody wants to have stories that are sort of an afterthought as just a vehicle to push a philosophy or politics or whatever onto you. Yeah. And we've all seen that, right? You see, oh, you yeah. see it in mainstream movies and TV shows all the time. There's like, here's yeah. a message they want to get out and they're, they're just <laughs> using the plot as a way to do it. It's, and, and, it and it, and it sucks, right? Like it's, yeah, it's just yeah. not, you, you want the good story that whatever you can have that stuff in the background, but it's gotta be the story. But I, I do believe, you know, in like a lot of what you see in Hollywood right now, is, is, you know, these middle-aged characters who are having these, like, existential crises and, and they, they, you know, they have this, like, teenage angst, but in a middle-aged character. And it, you see it all the time, right? And it's, like, characters I just can't even get behind. Like, it's, like, they're, 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 they're immature. They have, because they, they don't have morality, right? Or they don't, they yeah. don't know what their value system is. They've, they've shunned all the, all the, like, structural institutions that society's had. And now they're, like, well, gee, how do I find happiness? And, well, you know, you don't have to reconstruct that. There's, 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 thousands of years of human history that we can kind of <laughs> lean on to understand what works and what doesn't so yeah. i think i think it's important like if when i think people subconsciously will understand when you when you have morality in your character and listen a character can make bad choices too and that can be just as effective right mm -hmm. but but when when you have that i think people understand like through evolution what is what's true and what isn't and what's worked you know what i'm saying mm -hmm. so like yeah. like in all my books there's definitely themes and I've, you know, a lot, one of them for sure is like, you know, uh, the individual digging down deep and being able to overcome, you know, some, some big things, you know, find, yeah. finding, finding those extra reserves or whatever. And, but you can, you can, each book has like sort of a different message in it, but the message mm -hmm. is sort of buried deep. And it was something I didn't realize more till after I finished it, you know, and then I would, then would go back and say, oh, there's, there's what the theme is in the book. But having, having, having characters who, you know, make, even if they make the wrong decisions, having some change there has to be that character arc and having mm -hmm. having them having them grow having them improve as people is something that is very satisfying to all of us because that's that's how our brains are designed right you want yeah. you want your life to be better tomorrow than it was today and yeah. so when you when you can have this arc even if they have to go through very dark times which they should there there has to be the the darkest night right like that's yeah. that's, that's one of yeah. the beats in a book and but but to get through that and get get through the other side, I think is really important. You just got to be careful that you're not moralizing. 
Exactly. Yeah. Okay. That's so good. Now, I can't believe we're we're at the end of our time here, but I, I don't want to let you go until you um, update us on the projects that you're working about working on and also letting us know how we can stay in touch with you. Well, uh, the best way is at my website, which is jeffreyjameshiggins.com, J-E-F-F-R-E-Y, James Higgins, H-I-G-G-I-N-S.com. I have a newsletter, which I probably send out a newsletter every three or four months now. <laughs> they're, they're not that frequent, but that is a good way, like when I have news and updated things. And I post, I have a blog on that website, so I post when things are coming up. Um, I have a bunch of projects. I just split up with my agent a couple months ago, so I'm looking for somebody who really specializes in the thrillers that I'm writing. Yeah. Um, so I've got, I've got five, I'm on my fifth, editing my fifth project right now, but I've got a bunch of, uh, I think I have eight agents reading full manuscripts right now. So I've got some people interested in some of these projects. And so, you know, hopefully well, something, I'll have a couple books coming out next year. That would be. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, and then tell us, tell us about the last book that you, you wrote so that people, if they want to, if they want to um, read something that you've done already, let us know. So I, I, the last traditionally published book I had was Unseen, and that's the one that's based on a real, uh, it's, it's, it's a Maliki Wolf is a protagonist, and he's a rookie homicide detective, and he, he's, he, he's, he's trying to prove himself worthy. He was an economist, and he lost his father and decided he wanted to do something that was more tangible, and, and he uh, is trying to prove himself as a detective, and he stumbles on a body that turns into several, and all of a sudden he realizes he's into something much deeper until he becomes a target himself. So I, I think that's a fun that's a fun crime read. Um, I've got another military thriller, which was a, a Kindle Vela series. I don't know if you're familiar with those, but it, oh, you know, it's, a, it's, yeah. a, it's a it's a serial story. And I said, oh, let me try that. And a lot of people say, could you put it in, the, in a form other than the serial form that Amazon's doing? So I did a little ebook, and I'm, I'm I, for NaNoWriMo, National Novel Writing Month in November. I'm going to write the sequel to it to wrap up that story. But that's a little self-published thing. But hopefully I have these, these five other projects that will be traditionally published in the next year or two. Oh, wow. So it'll be plenty to keep us binging on what you're writing. Um, wow, you're the real deal. And I I do this all the time, especially with my favorite guests. But I'm going to ask you to pinky promise that you will come back and hang out with us. Oh, I'd love to. This is a, a really fun <laughs> conversation. I, I love I love just, just hanging out and talking about writing. It's a blast. Yeah. So it, it's been a pleasure to hang out with the Jeffrey James Higgins, who's taught us so much about writing. And I love that he said, the only way to fail is to stop. So don't forget to pierce through the darkness with the spoken and written word.